0: couple of bits of brief housekeeping before we begin today. First and foremost, we're now on Twitter, demystified underscore pod is the handle, so you can look for updates on new episodes and updates on the show in general on there. The show's also got a Patreon, Demystified by Ashley Stars, is where you'll find it, you'll see the logo, it's the same as on other platforms. From as little as £1 a month, you can support the show and help it grow, and the future tiers and rewards will be developed as time goes on. Now, on with the show. 1920, the Indus River. At this moment in time, the area known as Sindh is part of the British Raj, the controversial administration in charge of what is now India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. After the nationalisation of the British East India Company's possessions in 1858, due to the infamous Indian Rebellion of 1857, the imperial government created the system that would today be called the Raj. But as interesting as that period is, we're looking closer at one particular aspect of that unwieldy administration, the archaeological survey of India. Because around this time, several prominent archaeologists are on the brink of a discovery that will reshape our understanding of human development and the history of the world as a whole. In the deserts of modern-day Pakistan, on the banks of the Indus River, several men in several places make initial surveys. John Marshall Adi Banerjee, Kashinath Dixit, Ernest McKay, and several other prominent archaeologists with the survey have been tipped off about a few interesting sites. Suspected to be Buddhist stupas from the period preceding the Gupta Empire of the 300s. Fascinating to the experts, but nothing groundbreaking as of yet. But Banerjee spots something in the sand, half-buried amongst the excavation. A piece of a flint tool. This sets gears in motion in his head, and after discussing with his colleagues, they all agree, this site is far older than they anticipated. Could there be a Stone Age site here? So work begins in earnest. Over the next several decades, with site leaders coming and going, and world events changing around them, including the independence of India and the petition of Pakistan in 1947, more and more is uncovered. These aren't just stupas, and they belong to a civilization truly lost to time. Several sites emerge. Harappa, the type site, and Mahenjadaro, one of the most prominent, are dated from as early as 3000 BC or maybe even earlier than that. That puts these sites on par with ancient Egypt, long before Ashoka's Mauryan Empire sets much of Indian history as it's usually told in motion. This civilization stretched from Pakistan down the coast of India and all the way up to the Himalayas in the north. Since it followed the Indus River, the classical boundary of what was considered India, it would become known as the Indus Valley Civilization. Nobody ever said archaeologists were the most creative bunch, but despite the simple name, the Indus River Valley people were far more advanced than many of their Bronze Age counterparts. For instance, here are just some of the features of their cities urban planning, baked brick houses, elaborate drainage and water supply systems, think early plumbing clusters of large, non-residential buildings that are indicative of a highly specialized industry, new techniques and handicrafts and metallurgy, copper, bronze, lead and tin and other minerals, bathhouses, straight roads, underfloor heating, sewers, public works, complex administration, a unique writing system and a vibrant mythology. If all of that sounds like features of a highly developed civilization, well you'd be right on the money. And all of this at a time when in Britain, we were still figuring out the best way to make a henge, and the appropriate material for a henge. The wood henge versus Stonehenge debate was fiercely raging. Essentially, it was Rome before Rome. A fully-fledged, well-developed civilization with its own technology, language, culture, religion, industry, and way of life. And then, it wasn't. It was gone. Hidden beneath desert sands, its people scattered to the four winds, lost to time. As a result, all of that development, all of that prowess and progress was gone too. And it couldn't save them. This wasn't the first time a major and influential world power would disappear and it wouldn't be the last time, but in spite of every advantage that they'd managed to give themselves the people of the Indus Valley couldn't maintain what they had. And those who came after them couldn't seem to recover it. Well they did eventually, it's not as though all of those technologies were fully lost to time. But this example of a well developed, unique culture that was simply brushed off the pages of history and onto the cutting room floor really does make you think. What happened? How could this wondrous civilization just disappear? Today on Demystified, we look at the history and the mystery behind the rise and fall of the Indus River Valley Civilization. Today on Demystified we're tacking hard from last week's foray into the supernatural and looking at stone cold history. But this is far from dry and boring, we're looking at one of the most interesting civilizations you've never heard of. Never heard of may not be fully correct, at school we did cover it in history, for half of one term, with an emphasis on pottery making, come to think of it we might have done it in history class and art class as well. What I mean to intone is that the Indus Valley Civilization is covered, but maybe not nearly enough. And why not? We look at Rome and Greece for their impressive feats of urban planning, sanitation, technological and engineering development, municipal buildings, and other such feats. I suspect the same reason that we don't look at the Norte Chico civilization from South America, another contemporary developed society. Because in the West, at least, we claim a form of descent from Rome and Greece, however tenuous the link may be in the modern day. Simply put, the Indus Valley civilization was something that happened a long time ago and far away, nothing to do with us. But just because it didn't concern your ancestors doesn't mean it isn't fascinating. And this isn't to rag on European Bronze Age history, by the way. The Celts are absolutely fascinating to me. I wish we knew more about them. But for all of their cultural developments in the fields of poetry and mythology, they didn't have civic plumbing or underfloor heating. Also, for the sake of brevity, I will refer to the Indus Valley Civilization as IVC. It will keep things moving. But let's first take a big step back and look at the timeline of the Indus Valley Civilization. It first appears around 7000 BCE, but not as we know it later. This civilization is Neolithic. Neolithic from the Latin, neo meaning new, and lithic meaning stone or stone-related, hence Neolithic, New Stone Age. It takes a while to get going, but by around 3300 BCE, we have what appears to be the first stages of IVC proper. The areas of the IVC are called the Harappan Stages because Harappa is the type site for the Indus Valley Civilization. A type site is an archaeological site that is considered to best exemplify a culture's architectural or sociological stylings. For instance, the type site of the Hallstatt culture, an early Celtic culture in Europe, is the site located near the village of Hallstatt in Austria. Thus, the IVC is also called the Harappan Civilization. Between 3300 and 2800 BCE, we have the early Harappan period. This is when the written script, the as-of-yet-undeciphered Indus script, appears first, and we see a large-scale migration from villages to the nascent cities that would define the IVC. Why the migration? Well, interestingly, despite their advanced technology, the IVC never mastered irrigation, and as such their agriculture was based on monsoon farming. Heavy rainfall and the associated flooding would create the conditions around the Indus River for ideal farming. After a period of consistent heavy rain leading to a food surplus that allowed the creation of a larger gathering of people and diversified and specialised industries to develop, this becomes the foundation for all cities, really, but the Indus seemed to be particularly fertile at this time. And this is how most civilizations started. If I spend all my time farming, and so do you, we don't get as much cultural stuff done. But if I produce enough food for both of us, I can pay you some of that food to write a poem or make a brooch, and boom, instant new culture. We also see the ironing out of the culture at this time through the formation of regular trade routes, which led to an economic upturn and a more unified region, with increased internal stability within the culture. By 2600 BCE, we get the mature Harappan era, this coincides with a reduction in rainfall, which may have spurred the abandoning of many smaller villages in favour of more densely populated, concentrated urban areas. To elaborate, there was still a major food surplus generally, but more incentive to leave subsistence farming and move to a city. This is also when the urban planning gets turned up to 11. We know from the archaeology that there was one of two central concerns informing the urban planning in the Indus Valley civilisation – religious rituals and sanitation. Now, sanitation as a concern may seem obvious to us in the modern day, but most civilizations throughout history saw it as an afterthought. It's not that they didn't care, it's merely that for much of history the response to open sewage has been, eh, what are you going to do about it? Take for instance the Great Stink of 1858, the same year that the British Raj was established. London was racked by a hot summer that caused the raw sewage strewn across the city and in the Thames to become so unbearable that the whole city was doused with lime, Parliament was closed, and the London sewers were created just to deal with it. Not in the Indus Valley. With the city, individual homes and groups of homes obtained water from wells. From rooms that appear to have been set aside for bathing, wastewater was then directed to covered drains, which lined the major streets. Houses opened only to inner courtyards and smaller lanes. The ancient Indus systems of sewerage and drainage that were developed and used in the cities throughout the Indus region were far more advanced than any found in contemporary urban sites in the Middle East, and some even more efficient than those in many areas of Pakistan and India today. That's not an exaggeration. The Indian subcontinent is infamous for its lack of sanitation even in the modern era, in a large part due to a population explosion without the requisite updating of infrastructure. But that means modern Indians and Pakistanis may have worse sanitation than their distant forebears. But let that all sink in for a minute. This Bronze Age civilization had plumbing that London wouldn't get till the 1860s and some places in the modern world in developed countries don't have today. They didn't just stop at sanitation, though, oh no. Between multi-story houses, underfloor heating, hypercosts, a massive civic granary for storing grain with air ducts to allow for enhanced drying, a massive communal bath, possibly for religious reasons, possibly for sanitation, and an unprecedented number of wells, one for every three houses, the Indus Valley civilization was certainly a marvel of the ancient world. Now the main sites of Mohenjo-daro and Harappa weren't particularly heavily fortified, They had what appeared to be guard towers and some fortifications, but no retaining walls for defense. This seems to be because they were predominantly administrative sites, with other sites around forming a defensive perimeter. This puts some interesting implications on what the Indus Valley civilization might have been like. Now sometimes when we see a city without a wall, we assume strong warrior culture, like Sparta. But it's important to see the practical under the cultural. One of the reasons Sparta didn't have a wall was it was relatively poor, compared to other Greek city-states, it couldn't really afford one. However, we know that the Indus Valley Civilization was neither poor nor lacking in the means or technology to build the walls. Thus, for some reason, they didn't need them. This also leads us into one of the simultaneously best-known and least well-understood facts about the IVC: They were peaceful. Whether they were pacifists may be a stretch to conclude, but almost no weapons nor military infrastructure have been found, and the archaeology shows that until the very end of their lifespan almost no conflict was present in the lands of the IVC. From what we can tell, these were a people singularly averse to violence and not well versed in it. Despite controlling and maintaining one of the largest areas of any Bronze Age civilization, they just didn't fight. There are many interesting things that we have gathered about them from the period. For one, they had an equal and egalitarian society. There were, of course, those with more and those with less, but most houses were of a similar size and all of them had access to public sanitation and water. The implication here is that the concentration of wealth was relatively low and dispersed, as opposed to modern capitalist societies with massive concentrations of wealth. Their science was fairly well developed, Weights and measures were in use with some of the most accurate weights and measures of the whole of the Bronze Age world, and that's the entire globe, being found in Indus Valley sites. We don't know what their governance was like. It's clear that there was a very well-developed administrative sector, responsible for strong urban planning, but because we haven't cracked the language yet, there's much to be discovered. There are several theories, of course. Some say they had a central authority based in one of the bigger cities that reigned over all of the cities like an empire. Others contend it was more like ancient Greece, a series of city-states that cooperated or competed with each other. Anatomically accurate and realistic depictions of the human form are found in their art. This in particular shook up history, because up until the discovery of the Indus Valley's art, it was assumed that the Greeks of the Classical Age were the first to incorporate realistic human depictions into their art. But the IVC had that 3,000 years before them. Since trade was of such vital importance, it was speculated that they may have actually been the first civilization of any to develop and use the wheel en masse to facilitate their trade. But in spite of that, their sea-based trade was as well-developed as their overland trade, and we know this because of their seals, used for demarcating and identifying shipments of goods, having been found as far away as Mesopotamia, traced all the way back to the Indus Valley with their as-of-yet-undeciphered script on them. The trade links ran far, and they ran deep. As for their religion, it's still a bit of a mystery, despite much study. Whilst many historians believe that, due to some rather major symbolism found in the seals, their religion may have been a precursor to the contemporary Vedic religions that would evolve into the major religions of the Indian subcontinent, being Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism, concurrent symbolism suggests that there was a serious influence from Mesopotamian religions, such as would have been practiced in places like Uruk. Their funerary rites intrigued me. They practice something called fractional burial, wherein a body is left to the elements to be reduced to a skeleton and then buried, that or some form of cremation, or maybe both. Moreover, whilst they easily possess the technology to do so, no massive temple buildings or palaces were found, suggesting that most religious rites were performed either in the home, in a communal space like the Great Bath, or simply done outside. The Great Bath is also interesting because some speculate it was used for ritual cleansing, which is an important theme in later Vedic religions, like cleanliness being a big part of the caste system. So, five stars all round, job well done for the IVC. Not exactly, because for all that amazing achievement I just listed, we still need to get to the bottom of where they went. Around 1900 BCE, the cracks start to show. Bodies are found with signs of diseases like leprosy and tuberculosis, indicating potential plagues causing havoc in the densely populated urban areas. For their knowledge of sanitation, it seems that they lacked an intimate knowledge of diseases. We also see bodies with the signs of interpersonal violence, finally, suggesting either some civil unrest inside or external threats. By the year 1000 BCE, most of the great cities have been abandoned. And now we get to speculating why. Historian Sir Mortimer Wheeler suggested in 1953 that an invasion ended the Indus Valley civilization, Dubbed the Invasion of the Aryans, that's the original meaning of the early Indian people, not the later misused meaning, the suggestion posits that the Vedic cultures that would later define early Indian history were the ones who overran the Indus Valley. However, much of the evidence for this turned out to be misinterpreted, signs of battle ending up being signs of erosion. There's something worth noting, by the way, the modern residents of India and Pakistan can be traced to the migrants from the Caucasus, hence the tenuous link of the terms Caucasian and Aryan. The history of the co-opting of that term is shaky and controversial, but what that means is that the Indus Valley civilization is not necessarily congruent with later Indian or Pakistani civilizations. It also turns out that being a peaceful civilization might be fascinating for historians, but it isn't great in the realm of strategy. Part of the reason why this theory is still on the books is because, as far as we know, the Indus Valley civilization was peaceful, which makes downfall by invasion way more likely. Climate change is the next big theory. The idea is around 4,200 years ago, the Earth underwent a period of drying and cooling, leading to a major drought in the region and a general weakening of the monsoon, which disrupted the complex agriculture that the IVC was based on. As the monsoons migrated east and south, so too did the population centres, until the Ganges River in India became the dominant watercourse in the region and the Indus became less prominent. This lines up with the archaeology on the migrations of the IVC's people and the popping up of cities in increasingly eastward positions from what is today Pakistan towards to what is today India. There is also the suggestion of earthquakes, which plays an important part in the shaping of the overall theory. The archaeological evidence suggests major earthquakes in 2200 BCE, 2700, and 2900. Such successions of earthquakes, along with the drought, may have contributed to the decline of the systems that were in place there. Sea level changes are also found at two possible seaport sites along the coast, which are now inland. Earthquakes may have contributed to the decline of several sites by direct shaking damage, sea level change, or changes in water supply. Basically, the idea is that the massive earthquakes changed the course of the rivers, both the Indus and its tributaries, so much that it completely ruined the agriculture and that that caused the migration. After that, though, the Indus River Valley civilization was no more. Scattered to the winds, nothing more than dust on the pages of the world's history books. So what happened? What ended the Indus Valley civilization? I think it was a mixture of all of those things, but ultimately something we touched on in our episode on Troy and the Bronze Age Collapse. Something called systems collapse. In any society, there's a certain base level of complexity needed to maintain that society. The more complex a society, the more it can achieve, but equally the higher the floor. In that most basic of transactions we talked about earlier, I make food, you make culture, I give food, you give culture. Society? If I can no longer make enough food for both of us, that means you can't make culture and you have to go back to making food, which equally means our city falls apart and we both go back to smaller subsistence farms. Therefore, collapse of society. One example I guess could be the Spartans never had manicure specialists. On the one hand, our nails are much better than theirs ever were. On the other hand, if their granaries ran empty, they'd stand to lose far less than the manicurists would lose if our shelves ran empty and never restocked. It's like a machine with more and more and more cogs. Ironically, the more cogs you add, the fewer you can afford to lose, because each becomes more and more necessary supporting the others. So it's a systems collapse that would do them in, I think. Climate change is the first big factor, along with the possibility of major earthquakes and other seismic activity that causes the beginning of the end. The crops fail, the belts get tightened, and many have to leave the cities because jobs in the artisan sectors and the administrative sectors can't be maintained. This leaves the cities emaciated and at a population deficit. Starvation and disease begin to kick in. Then, perhaps, they're attacked. I'm not assuming that no resistance was put up, more due to the fact that there was a resource shortage, they wouldn't have been able to muster the necessary defences in time to repel the invaders. No materials to make the spears, no people to hold them in, equals no army to fight. But by the time the invaders had ransacked the cities, most of the population would have been long gone anyway, They'd migrated to waterways with the characteristics more akin to those that had attracted them to the Indus in the first place. Good harvest, consistent flooding, manageable effects of said flooding, access to larger bodies like seas and oceans for trade. These new cities and states aren't exactly descendants of the Indus Valley civilization though. The migration isn't instantaneous, it happens over a long period. As such, the new states don't consider themselves successors to the Indus Valley civilization, and therefore don't try to emulate them. Thus, much of the technological development and cultural uniqueness gets lost, making the way for different technologies and new unique cultures. It's got to be very similar to the Bronze Age collapse, in my opinion, or at least the current thinking on it. Remember, much like this story, that boat is still out there. But let's take Egypt from the Bronze Age collapse. I think it compares very well. Their army was based in a large part on charioteers. Effective, but expensive. Droughts and economic shrinkage lead to an inability to maintain expensive chariot armies. As a result, trade collapses, because of the invasion of the Sea Peoples, amongst others, leading to an inability to administer and control previous lands, which leads again to a shrinkage of lands within the empire. The cycle continues until a new form of stability is reached, with the new post-collapse Egyptian society being a reduced form of the old one. However... Because the Nile didn't undergo such a drastic ecological and potentially seismic shift, the Egyptians don't migrate away from it to other waterways. As such, there is a cultural continuity between pre-collapse Egypt and post-collapse Egypt. Same with the Mycenaeans and the Greek city-states. A collapse, but not a complete reinvention. Not so for the Indus Valley. Because, as the thinking goes, there was a massive climate and seismic shift that reshaped the Indus's ability to provide the conditions that led to the rise of the civilization, the lack of those conditions meant that there was a need to migrate away eastward to follow the monsoons to better waterways like the Ganges. That's not a confirmed theory. The archaeology for this one is still being discovered. We have no Rosetta Stone for the Indus script. There's loads of mysteries waiting to be uncovered. What was their religion like? Was it related to the later Vedic religions of the Indo-Aryan people? What was the government like? Was it one empire, based out of an administrative centre like mohenjo-daro or Harappa, like ancient Egypt, or perhaps a collective of city-states like the ancient Greeks? Was it a trade coalition like Venice or the Hansa, or maybe a theocracy ruled by priests? Were they truly a peaceful civilization? Were they as egalitarian and equality-focused as the archaeology suggests? We like to think these days that we know most of history with a decent amount of certainty. Sure, there's periods we don't know, dark ages where the sources get scarce, but for the most part we've got the history of the world down pat. China, Egypt and Mesopotamia, Greece, Rome, Dark Ages, Middle Ages, Renaissance, colonialism and empires, industrialization, World War I, World War II, Cold War, now. But go outside of the mainstream of what you're taught in school, and that will vary based on where you are, and there's a treasure trove of history just waiting to be discovered. The Polynesians crossing the Pacific long before modern navigation. The Nazca making their famous lines with string and geometry. The cities of North America centuries before the Mayflower. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy's government that influenced Western democracies more than Greece and Rome. The mudbrick spires of West Africa. The rites of the Celtic Druids. The rise and fall of the steppe empires from the Xiongnu to the Mongols. What I mean to convey is that there's so much history left to discover and that looking backwards can sometimes be as important as looking forwards, because sometimes things can be left behind that you want to take with you. When the Indus Valley civilization collapsed, we lost centuries of urban development, sanitation technology, and trade networks that defined an era. We didn't get many of those things back until hundreds or thousands of years later, and as mentioned before, some places today aren't infrastructurally as developed as they were. I'm not a backwards-looker by nature, though. I loathe tradition, and the idea that just because an idea or value was old means it's inherently good is silly to me. Stood the test of time is often just a thing surviving by dumb luck as much as inherent value. By that virtue, the Indus Valley is interesting in that they didn't stand the test of time, but one could certainly still stand to learn a thing or two from them. For instance, it seems that they made sure that even their poorest had access to clean water and sanitation, Today, billionaires dine on private jets whilst the poorest use food banks to scrape by paycheck to paycheck. Here's another example. Almost every country this day and age spends billions of dollars on their militaries, just in case. Does the Indus Valley teach us that you don't need weapons to be developed, or that sometimes it's better to have and not need than need and not have? It's largely up to your interpretation what you take away from this story, as is most of history. That's why we have what's called historiography, That is, how the history gets told, rather than what's in the history specifically. So make sure that you always keep an open mind when skimming through your history book, because there may yet be more secrets to uncover buried between the dusty pages. And that about concludes the story, as we know it so far, of the Indus River Valley Civilization. This has been Demystified by Ashley Styles. This episode was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: mypatriotsupply.com